We are at a moment when our kids could be experiencing a restoration era on the earth. Ecotopia is out there. Right, um, right. I'm not being a little silly about it, but this is like hundreds of years in the making, and we're at this inflection point. Then, of course, there's a fly in the ointment. It's called climate change. We've heard about tipping points in ecosystems that could cause, you know, mass migrations due to societal collapse. This is scary stuff, and if you actually read this sort of dry IPCC reports, mm -hmm. yeah, you should be scared. It's sort of like double or nothing. We must quickly and as as rapidly as possible enter that era of global planetary restoration in order to avoid a much darker outcome. Yeah, if we we can create the ecotopia as you called it or we could just die. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the earth has actually entered a new epoch and that is the anthropocene. anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it. And of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine that impact through a familiar lens, that of natural climate solutions, with the man who introduced that term to us way back in episode 31 of Bionic Planet, which was called How Nature Can Get Us 37% of the Way to Meeting the Paris Climate Target. I rebroadcast that episode late last year as episode 52. It featured today's guest, Bronson Griscom, who was the lead author on a 2017 report called, appropriately enough, Natural Climate Solutions, which are solutions that aim to reverse climate change by nurturing natural carbon sinks like forests, as well as farms and fields, in such a way that they'll absorb more greenhouse gas and store more carbon. Today we examine a new paper published just this week, which built on those 2017 findings to see how natural climate solutions could realistically be deployed right now in countries around the world at a cost of $50 per ton of carbon dioxide either pulled from or prevented from entering the atmosphere. Bronson and his co-authors identified nearly two dozen tropical countries where natural climate solutions can realistically absorb more greenhouse gas than the country's economies emit right now. 
one of those countries can absorb four times as much, if we're willing to pay for it. Assuming a carbon price of $50 for every metric ton of carbon dioxide removed or, again, prevented from entering the atmosphere, there's one country that can boost its GDP by a staggering 90%. I caught up to Bronson more than a month ago at year-end climate talks in Madrid, but I didn't want to post the interview until after the paper had been published. I figure this way, if you hear the interview and the paper's available, you're more likely to download it and hopefully get more out of it. So it's been, uh, what, two years since we spoke last. I oh, think, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, time flies. Yeah. And the last time we spoke, you had just come up with this paper called Natural Climate Solutions. It was the first time I'd heard that term. And the gist was that you identified 20 pathways that could deliver 37% of the mitigation needed to meet the Paris uh, Agreement's two-degree target at a pretty low cost. And they were getting only 3% of the funding and 1% of the conversation. Things have changed a little bit since then. <laughs> I mean, when we did our carbon markets report, we found that this desire for natural climate solutions was number one in people's minds. Well, Stephen, I've been thrilled that that there's been a, a change in the conversation, a major increase in awareness. I certainly don't think we should take like the only credit for that. There are lots right. of folks involved in this yeah. space. There's a whole movement. I think our study was sort of at the right time and framed in, in a way that was quite helpful in that conversation. It is now fully, I think, on the table in the conversation. And now we have to, to do it. If we're not able to respond to that attention with demonstrated outcomes that are beginning to move the needle, then who knows, like maybe some of the same concerns will crop up like, oh, you know, land sector's too complicated, I shouldn't get distracted with this. You know, th these are some of the older concerns about this space because it's, it's so-called non-point sources and ecosystems are complicated, but there's been a, a great deal of science in the past decade plus, not to mention remote sensing technology, all sorts of advances in the sciences that have allowed us to, to have a lot more confidence in sort of robust accounting around this. So that's, that's helped a lot. The other thing that's happened is we've reached a point, and this is sort of, I think, was expressed in the 1.5 degree IPCC special report, among other studies that have come out, but it, it used to be a decade plus ago that, that we kind of had more options. Mm -hmm. We could kind of pick our pathway to limit warming below really, really dangerous levels, we can kind of pick different sort of scenarios about which sectors to include in a big way. We're getting to the point where we don't have those options anymore. We have to do all sectors, all big sectors. Okay, you're saying in the, it used to be that we, we could have done a few, now we have to do everything. Yeah, there, I think, used to be a lot of angst about the notion of like, well, if you allow the land sector to come into play and then there's sort of financing flowing, you know, towards uh, these land sector solutions, maybe that'll be financing that doesn't flow towards fossil fuel emission reductions. And then you get into this question about which of these options do we prioritize. Now, where we are is that it is no longer helpful to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. We must invest in a big way in all major sectors. Mm -hmm. We must invest in dramatically driving down fossil fuel emissions. We must invest in, in dramatically reducing land emissions and increasing land sinks. 
So it's yes and, not either or. Right, right, right. And that is a generally accepted idea now. You're saying used to be something that people would be like, eh, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't now. It's... I, I, there is, there, there is still a little bit of debate about that, but I think it's... It's a question of degree. Let me put it this way. There's a bit of a false debate going on now, mm -hmm. I think, and I've seen in some papers. There's a, there's a false debate that, that there are some people saying, like, we can't just do NCS, mm -hmm. but nobody's ever, ever saying that. I mean, right. yeah. I, well, there, every once in a while you get sort of, there are, I, let me just say, there's no serious conversation right. that the land sector is the only option, yeah. the only major solution. And, and increasingly, I don't think there's a very serious conversation that fossil fuel emission reductions are the only story either. And I think that the, the primary thrust of most conversations is how do we include both mm -hmm. and what and sort of unpackaging these things, right? And so this is gets to where this 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 new paper we have coming out is is okay. So let's move past the conversation about whether or not we need to invest in land-based climate mitigation and natural climate solutions in a big way. We do. Now the question is, you know. What does that mean? It means different things in different places. Mm -hmm. right. and, that's, and that's what you did here that's different from the last one, is you went in country by country, and you took a very detailed look at what different countries could offer and how, how deeply they could reduce their emissions. In some cases, they could become net sinks, and at what cost? That's, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And one of the exciting dimensions of Natural Climate Solutions is that it is a solution that is truly global, and almost every country has an interesting set of options around improved land stewardship. We had one paper come out recently in 2018, uh, Fargioni et al. in Science Advances, specifically looking at the United States. And our finding is that despite the fact that the United States is obviously a highly industrialized country, the um, largest economy in the world, a major part of the U.S., climate solution is through natural climate solutions. We have a study now underway working with the Canadian scientists for a national study there. So, sorry, that is just to say that there are solutions throughout the world. But for this new sort of global scale paper, we have focused on the tropics for two reasons. One is that we wanted to go deeper. And so having a focus allowed us to sort of get some results sooner. And so that just, just by sort of pragmatic reasons. Another reason is that the tropics is, geographically speaking, the largest piece of the pie. It's about a little over 60% of the sort of total climate mitigation land, natural climate solution pie is in the tropics. And then finally, when we look at the NCS solution as a proportion of national emissions, so, so thinking of it, of, of sort of, of what role does it play in actually the national government efforts, it is tends to be a considerably larger proportion because a lot of those countries have a bigger agrarian and forestry dimension to their, their economies. And so we thought it was important to sort of highlight the role of NCS in delivering on tropical countries' NDCs. And then finally, the point being that a lot of countries in the tropics don't have the capacity to do their own detailed in-depth natural climate solutions research and so we wanted to provide at least a reference point for individual countries to understand how they can include NCS into their NDCs, into their nationally determined contributions that are currently being updated. Okay, and that's why you, you self-impose certain restrictions on what 
what to include and what not to include, right? Is that because you you wanted to be you only wanted to focus on what could be done? You know what was, or is that? Uh, may, am I going on a different tangent here? Sorry, um, yeah. Let me just think about what you mean by that. Um, I thought maybe I thought you you'd, you only included twelve pathways. Oh, excellent point. Okay, that's a great. Yes. So, so additionally, in in this effort to focus our our energies to improve our estimates, bring them down to national scale estimates that um, we can essentially present and offer to individual countries. We wanted to focus on what we would consider the highest priority forms of natural climate solutions. So in doing so, we identified 12 types of NCS actions, which account for 80% of the total of uh, NCS climate mitigation potential. And we identify those based upon their co-benefits, or I should just say their their other benefits, which at a local scale are often the most important benefit. So, for example, air filtration, water filtration, flood buffering, soil fertility, these are all things that conservation and restoration of landscapes deliver. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to focus on those as well. Okay. And your, your, your headline finding is like basically half of tropical countries can reduce their emissions by more than 50% by adopting natural climate solutions, right? Or did I phrase that wrong? You got it. Okay. What we found is that half of tropical countries can mitigate over half of their national greenhouse gas emissions cost-effectively with natural climate solutions. And in fact, there are a number of countries which can go way beyond carbon neutral using NCS. They can go way into the negative, which is to say beyond what any country can reasonably expected to do for its own contribution, which is to, to, is to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. Right. So some of these countries, I, th- I saw Kenya in there. Let me, can we go to that list? Can we look yeah, at it? Yeah, so, yeah, I have to pull it up. Or do you have it? I've got it in here, but if you have a you bigger mind, version, yeah. While he's digging that up, let me just remind you that Bionic Planet is, for the most part, listener-supported. The one complaint I consistently get from listeners is that I don't produce enough episodes. That's because I can't afford to. Doing them quick and dirty is kind of easy, but doing them right takes time, and time is money. If you like Bionic Planet and want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet there you can support me for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap if you're on the legacy system and you're happy paying per month even if i don't generate that many episodes well you can stay there but if you want to pay per episode or have that flexibility patreon is the way to go the address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end. And that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, 
the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. So what's this paper called? It's called National Mitigation Potential from Natural Climate Solutions in the Tropics. That might be a bit of a mouthful, but it's <laughs> Natural Climate Solutions in the Tropics. Yeah, that's all you need to remember. And that's not a working title, right? That's what it'll be called. They've already That is the title. Okay. Correct. So these are the countries. So Costa Rica, number one. So they can they can actually create a sink that's four times their current emissions. Am I reading that's that right? It. You're reading it right. Wow. That's interesting because Costa Rica's always they've always been so good. I would think that they might have been kind of getting hurt by having been good in the past. Maybe they took such good care of their forests that they wouldn't be able to improve their natural situation anymore. I'm surprised to see them so high. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it also emphasizes that even some of the best actors have a huge set of opportunities. I mean, so Costa Rica still has deforestation to contend with, not mm. nearly as high as many countries for sure. And they're also a country that has passed through much of their frontier, not all of it for sure, but much of their frontier, and, and they have a, a big agricultural landscape to which you can apply better agricultural practices. They have, you know, forests that are managed for timber. I think it's a great point. I mean, despite what you might think is mm -hmm. that sort of some countries have kind of arrived at Nirvana yeah. on NCS, the, you know, it's not the case. There's, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to improve land stewardship, even in countries that have demonstrated great advances in the past. Okay. This is a sort of a technical point, but I'm also considering that one of the reasons that Costa Rica can remove four times more from the atmosphere that they're currently emitting is that they're not currently emitting that much. Right, 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 yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And what's also interesting is I'm looking at the bars. You've got four different categories there that they can do of the, of the how many of the, of the six, oh, the, why is there only six there? Yeah. Sorry, I realize that's kind of confusing. We simplified it, so we've done some lumping okay. just so that you can kind of read the graph. So we have these 12 pathways, but increasingly we're trying to talk about sort of major types of actions mm -hmm. so that people can kind of think in, in more straightforward ways about what this is going to take. And, and then we also, from the original paper, talk about the major biomes that we need to act in. So if you put together the three major different types of actions, which is to protect, to manage and restore mm -hmm. landscapes across forests, wetlands, and agricultural systems. The major combinations we come up with are six. Gotcha. Right. Even though we have more granular unpackaging of those. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, too, in looking at the breakdown in Costa Rica, because you, you, you do have this division, you've got protect, then you've got restore, and then manage. And when I look at Costa Rica, it looks like the biggest lump is protecting the forest, but the second is managing their forest. That's correct. So you're looking at improved forest management, improved land management. You also have improved agriculture. I'm looking at Kenya, and the biggest chunk there is improving management of agriculture. Maybe what, what does that entail? This, this is, I, it's, I assume what you're doing here is you're taking into account the need for people to make a living off of these land systems, right? You're that's absolutely right. I think I think one of the of those three major categories that that I mentioned, right? Protection, 
management and restoration. I should probably explain those a little bit more carefully to be clear. So the protection and the restoration are kind of the, th the topics that we, we often tend to, tend to talk about the most in the, in the environmental community right. around natural climate solutions, right? So everybody knows what protection is. Essentially, you know, avoiding damage to ecosystems either through classic protected areas kind of approach or any other approach that actually avoids damage, right? That's, that's what we mean by protect. We're using a pretty specific concept of re restore, and by that we're, we're, we're mostly meaning like rewilding. So basically expanding the footprint of native cover, okay. um, bringing back, uh, you know, what if systems that have been converted and degraded back to their natural cover. So reforestation is a classic example and the largest example of the restore category. And then there's this third category um, that I'd love to talk about a little bit more. It is improved management of working lands, okay? So there are a set of, of, action, of interventions where we said, okay, look, these are landscapes that need to produce food, they need to produce wood, and, in, and even in some places they need to produce fuel for our society. And we're not interested in exploring scenarios where we are risking food security. We're not interested actually in even reducing global production of structural wood mm -hmm. because structural wood has a lower climate impact than cement and steel. Mm -hmm. right. So that would be a perverse outcome to simply eliminate logging that generates structural wood. Now, I'll, as an aside, you know, paper and pulp are, are replaceable yeah, by right. in the things that are more sustainable. But wood for structural materials is another um, product that we need to maintain, you know, and, and produ produce from our working lands. And so we asked the question, what are the things that we can do while maintaining and even increasing those production for a growing human population, production of food and, 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 and wood, while storing more carbon in those systems or avoiding the emission of other greenhouse gases from those systems? And so one of the things I'm very excited about is in this coming decade, what I think everybody agrees is we absolutely must act. We, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to shift from, you know, talking and planning and discussing what needs to happen to actually doing it, and and seeing it begin to scale up to really move the needle. These improved management of working landscapes options have the fewest barriers in terms of cultural barriers and social barriers in many places, not in, in all places, but in many places. And, and you know, you think about the United States, for example, or in Brazil, for example, where there's a, you know, a lot of concern about the political climate right now. Mm -hmm. Can we do things that create rural jobs mm -hmm. um, while improving production? That's apolitical. It should fact, be, should be. It should be. And you know, in the United States, both Republicans and Democrats want to create jobs in rural areas. Mm -hmm. You mentioned there was a standalone report on the U.S. So, yeah, so we had a, a paper came out in 2018, led by a colleague of mine, Joe Fargioni, and Science Advances. And what we did is we took the whole framework that we used to do our 2017 paper called Natural Climate Solutions to look specifically at the United States. And it was really a really deep study where we developed a bunch of new maps for restoration opportunities and quantified, you know, all forms of, of natural climate solutions between protect and improve management and restore native cover. The title of that paper is Natural Climate Solutions in the United States. So the top line finding is that 
for our current NDC, which is not sufficient. Right. Right. We need to we need to ramp, you know, we need to ratchet that up. But to deliver on our current NDC, we could deliver on a third of that in the US with not just cost effective, but actually low cost NCS in the US. So so I'm talking about ten dollars per ton or less. The vast the bulk of that would be forms of improved management. Okay. So you know in the US, unlike many tribal countries, we're post-frontier country. We're not actually really losing that much right. of our ecosystems. We're losing some and we need to stop that. But, mm-hmm. but you know, we have extensive working lands, whether it's agricultural lands, we're one of the breadbaskets of the world, or timberlands, and we're one of the wood, we're the wood, one of the wood baskets of the world. So it's no surprise that the bulk of that solution for the, that contribution to our current Paris targets would be delivered through s- some form of improved management of working lands, so mm-hmm. essentially better forestry, better agriculture. And then, of course, we kind of throw our hands up and say, well, gosh, you know, Trump is in office. Yeah. You know, will any of this happen? Mm-hmm. And, and my answer to that is, is it's actually somewhat serendipitous that the bulk of our near-term, most cost-effective solutions in the United States involve improving rural jobs, yeah. It involve imp- it involves business models that we need to invest in. You know, these are like Republican talking points. Yeah, should so, be again. That's yeah. Well, I mean, should be. And so we need to yeah. figure out how to communicate this in ways. And, and let's just put it this way, right? It shouldn't be Republican talking points or Democratic talking points. I think it's both of it should Democratic be and Republican. To, it yeah. should be apolitical. But the bottom line is, everybody wants, you know, better rural jobs, everybody wants sustainable production of food and mm-hmm. wood. And doing these things can make a really major contribution, even in the US, which is a highly industrialized country, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah do you know Todd Bendor? I don't. He's at uh, NC Chapel Hill, I think. He did a study on just on the mitigation banking sector and, and the whole restoration economy. He basically said in the US, uh, even now, it's about a $25 billion a year sector and it employs more than oil more than gas more than wow yeah, yeah. That i had i had him on the, the show i think it's a message that is very consistent with 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 that broader restoration economy message If you want to hear more about the restoration economy, specifically if you want to hear the episode that I alluded to above, check out episode 46, The Case of the Billion Dollar Foot. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the one complaint that I consistently get from listeners is that I don't produce enough episodes. That's because I'd like to hire people to help me with this, the editing and stuff. That's not really my forte. If you like Bionic Planet and you want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Again, if you're on the legacy system and you're happy paying a set amount per month, you can stay there. But if you want to pay per episode instead of per month, Patreon is the way to go. The address again, patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show 
all the way to the end, and that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. And we can do it if we all work together. As you point out, getting back to your original point, in Costa Rica, improved management of forests is a, is a big part of their solution set. In Kenya, improved management of agricultural landscapes is the biggest part of their solution set. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a number of other countries, actually, particularly in Mauritania, in Africa, yeah. where improved uh, management of agricultural landscapes um, is a huge opportunity, again, mm-hmm. while improving the sustainability of food production. Mm-hmm. You also limited these two interventions that would cap out at $100 a ton, right? That, because that's a social cost of carbon. And most of them are a lot lower than that. That's absolutely right. So what we've done essentially to, while we added, uh, you know, gr- quite a bit of depth in this study, we sort of simplified by focusing on this constraining all of the uh, different options to those that can be delivered at less than $100 per ton of CO2. And it used to be, by the way, this is another Going back to your original point, this is another thing I think that has changed in the conversation. When we published the paper in 2017, we got a lot of questions about, you know, why did you include a $100 threshold? That's just like, that's way too high. (laughs) And, you know, of course, my standard answer would be like, well, it's way too high based on our current willingness to pay, but it is actually the rational level of payment right now. That is, you know, back in 2017. It's just that we're not yet at a societally rational point point on this (laughs) conversation around climate change. But now, only a couple years later, you know, spending up to $100 is no longer a crazy idea. Sweden has legislation that involves a price on carbon above $100. Canada has legislation for $50. Mm -hmm. And so... When we talk about an upper limit of $100 to constrain this, yes, we are talking about willingness to, to that most of, most of these options that we're laying out here are going to cost, well, all of them will cost less than that, but most of them will be, you know, $50 or less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going back to the, this issue of these countries that can reduce their emissions lower than they can become net carbon sinks, they could then conceivably turn this into an income source as a result. Are there carbon standards associated with with all of these interventions yet, or with most of them, or it's, is it doable? Great question. I, so most of, of them have carbon standards around them. And that to use the simplest one in terms of accounting, you know, avoided deforestation, mm-hmm. you know, we have freely available remote sensing globally that tracks this stuff. You know, different countries, you know, can either use their own, you know, system or they can use these freely available, very robust systems. And it's certainly well recognized in the international community that, that that would play a role in terms of setting baselines and this sort of accounting challenges. So most of the options that we talk about have benefited from this sort of decade of advances in terms of their technical accounting community and, the, and, the, and in the policy community. There are some for which we still need work to sort of fill some gaps. And we certainly didn't want to limit ourselves to only those options that have been fully baked in the accounting world. Now, you've, you've, you've got a, a section here showing what this all means for national economies. Can we flesh this out a bit? 
if we take for each country their total climate mitigation potential at anything less than $100 per ton, we assume an average cost and value of delivering that climate mitigation of $50, right? Which is just the midpoint between zero and 100. And when we, so when we say the cost and value um, per ton of CO2 is $50, what we find is there are a number of tropical countries for which NCS would constitute 10% or more of their gross domestic product. Wow. I think there are two things that we can read into that. One is that if we actually did value carbon storage at the value that economists tell us is rational because it this will avoid a higher cost to global economies in the future by storing the carbon, delivering um, this service could be transformational to a number of tropical country economies. It, would, it could be a major sector. Let's just think of it as a restoration and conservation sector for climate in a lot of these countries that would be a big deal in those countries. At the same time, what it tells us is that these countries are unlikely to be able to afford the upfront costs of implementing a lot of these things, even though in many cases, and we've talked about the improved management, um, improved business models for land stewardship often makes perfect sense in the long term, but there's often a cost barrier to you know, buying better machinery, to training people to use better practices. Even though it makes good business sense, you need that upfront capital. Right, right. And, and, and a lot of these countries simply don't have that in thinking about sort of the, just the sheer size of their GDP to do that. So, so what does that mean? So let's put the pieces together. Many of these countries can deliver way beyond carbon neutrality in their own national emissions, which means essentially they can deliver not just their really ambitious NDCs if they get to, you know, meaning getting to carbon neutrality, but they can deliver on global ambition beyond that. They can transform their national economies in doing that, but they will need international support to do so. And, and international support to do so is not just a charitable right, right. contribution. It is because we're, we would be you know, asking those countries to go beyond what would be sort of an equitable mm-hmm. contribution to, to climate mitigation. But, but why should we ask them to do that? Why does it make sense to sort of invest even beyond carbon neutrality for many of these countries? Because... Um, this also plays into delivering on our sustainable development goals, right. um, delivering on global biodiversity conservation, delivering on safe drinking water for human populations, delivering on decent air quality, sustainable food production with better soil fertility. A lot of these things that we, that we care about as a global community is kind of the secret sauce of NCS. Mm-hmm. You've got this, this grid along the bottom. You've got the the NCS as a percentage of GDP, but then you also have uh, a governance indicators. So a lot of the countries that would benefit the most also have governance issues, right? So what 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 should we read from this? What we all know is that solving national governance issues and you know the complex social and cultural questions around land stewardship are not simple. And so 
we wanted to look at and sort of unpackage that question about, okay, what's the range of governance challenges in, you know, the range of tropical countries? And I would say this. I think that a lot of attention, at least in my circle, tends to uh, focus on a couple of really large countries where everybody knows we need to help those countries find solutions for, for land, better land stewardship. But sometimes I worry that we, we focus so much on a couple of really big countries. Brazil and Indonesia. Brazil and Indonesia <laughs> and, you know, and a handful of others mm-hmm. that whenever there's sort of a political drama in one of those countries, we have you know, tremendous angst about, about how are we going to move forward. And so part of what we're trying to do here is, is step beyond that focus on a couple of countries and say, wait a second, in this coming decade, what we have to do is we have to start to demonstrate real action at scale, but we, we need to develop the inspiring individual stories that are going to allow us to further scale up in the next couple of decades, in the 2030s and 2040s, right? So this is a multi-decadal process. So can we find a larger set of countries, including medium and smaller countries, that are really well positioned to be shining examples of how to really pull this off at a national scale, okay? So that's kind of what, that is the goal of this graph where we include this governance spectrum and say, okay, look, we need a plan to help all countries do this. But the countries where we can demonstrate um, and support those countries to demonstrate action immediately, you know, at a national scale this decade are more likely to be countries with higher governance. Meanwhile, let's, in, let's, well, let's, let's invest this decade in, in helping those other countries to prepare for major actions you know, that might take you know, another decade or two. So we put the pieces together of what are those high governance countries where they have, at a national scale, major natural climate solution opportunities that would allow them to go beyond being carbon neutral and deliver additional global ambition and transform their economies. You know, all of those pieces in place. And then we see a number of, of really exciting opportunities to invest in NCS at a national scale. Botswana, Costa Rica, Solomon Islands, Guyana, Suriname, Zambia, Paraguay. So those um, all have good governance, right? Those, those have relatively good governance yeah. and are just examples, right? You can look at you know the full list in the paper, but those are countries where we have that that kind of combination of relatively good governance, the opportunity to transform economies, and and hence, hopefully, for a some set of those countries, the leaders of those countries would see this as not just a sort of a side dish, but it's something they would go all in on in order to transform their economies. It looks like Somalia could almost double its GDP, right? Yes, And exactly. the DRC, the same. Central African Republic, DRC. Yeah. You've got a couple of countries where, again, delivering an economically valuable service of conservation and restoration of their, of their critical ecosystems could be absolutely, like, not just somewhat transformational, but completely transformational right. to their economies if we actually valued that service. Right. And this is based on a $50 uh, uh, a ton price. Correct. But you're not really factoring additionality and everything, right? So they wouldn't necessarily, like, a lot of these would pay for themselves. Like, a lot of these interventions, like, if they improve the agriculture and it improves yields, would they necessarily qualify for carbon finance? <sighs> That's a very interesting question. 
So these are all, everything we're talking about here is technically additional climate mitigation outcomes. So that's saying it's beyond what is currently happening mm -hmm. and is beyond essentially the sort of projection of a business as usual scenario. Now, it's a very interesting conversation to, to ask, well, wait a second, if it makes good business sense to do this anyway, would you pay for that service? But here's the, here's the trick. It won't happen. We don't think it will happen according to business as usual practices. That doesn't mean it doesn't make good business sense mm -hmm. because the business as usual practices often are not you know, as logical as we would like them to be. Right, and right, a lot right. of these developing countries, they again, as I said, they have sort of fundamental barriers, a variety of barriers to actually doing what is actually quite economically rational, you know, even in the absence of a, a price on carbon. So what that means is that I think this is actually the kind of scenario that we are looking for in this space, right? It's the, what we're looking for, ideally, are situations where with a price on carbon, we can set communities, private sector in these countries onto new trajectories that over the long term will pay them for themselves, mm -hmm. but in the short term need that financing, need that capital, need that capacity and technical support to get onto those different trajectories. Does yeah. that make sense? That does, yes, yes, yes. So stepping back for a moment and thinking about the really big picture, sometimes I worry that the conversation about climate change is fundamentally difficult and can cause us to get a little depressed. And so I think it's helpful to step back for a moment and look at some powerfully optimistic forward-looking scenarios. So what is very little discussed is that we are at a historic inflection point in the interaction between humans and the earth. Okay, so the history of human civilizations has been a history of increasing footprint of humans on the earth, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's just the growth of human societies. And, you know, we're all, we're all aware of this on some level. Very recently, we passed the point of having more than half of the earth's ice-free land under full management by humans, right? And, and, and we've now speak of this as the era of the Anthropocene, yeah. right? That's why I call it bionic planet. That's why you call it bionic <laughs> planet. There's another threshold or inflection point that we are also approaching. It is a conversation sometimes referred to as peak land conversation. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? That means, you know, just like in the sense, the notion of peak oil, it's a question, will we reach a high watermark in the footprint of humans on the earth? Let's just think about the extent of agricultural landscapes, those managed landscapes that we just talked about and, you know, managed forests. And so the answer is, is yes, in fact, there have been some studies looking at this, and they include a variety of, of factors that play into, you know, our trajectory of our human footprint, right? There's population growth, there's average consumption per capita, and those are sort of two of the biggies. So the good news is, whereas population is still growing, the rate of population growth is declining, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the curve is bending. And population is expected to sort of reach a maximum sometime later this century. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, our technology and our practices for, for agri agriculture actually is continuing to improve so that we can produce more food per hectare mm -hmm. one decade to the next. 
example, one, one study in particular by Osabel et al. in 2012 found is that we are right at the inflection point of actually a declining global human footprint on the earth because of that declining rate of population growth, that increasing efficiency of agricultural production. Okay. okay. This is actually incredibly exciting. We can have more people and use less land. Yeah. That's right. We are at a moment when our kids could be experiencing a restoration era on the earth. Ecotopia is out there. Right, um, right. I'm not being a little silly about it, but this is like hundreds of years in the making. And we're at this inflection point now. So that's the optimism. Yeah, right? that's where we can go. We should be excited about that. Then, of course, there's a fly in the ointment. It's called climate change. We've heard about tipping points in ecosystems that could cause you know, mass migrations due to societal collapse. I mean, this is scary stuff. And if you actually read this sort of dry IPCC reports, mm -hmm. yeah. you should be scared. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> it, it, is, it, is, it is pretty frightening. But let's put those two pieces together. We've talked about the massive role of the sleeping giant in this story is you know, land-based ecosystems, which have the ability to store massive amounts of carbon, are currently holding massive, massive carbon that we can avoid emitting by improved land stewardship and you know, increase those sinks. This can contribute a large part of the cost-effective climate mitigation. Meanwhile, we have all this exciting developments in technology. You know, I'm really hoping to buy a Tesla pretty soon. I just put solar panels on my, on my house. Like this stuff is happening and yeah. it's not just me, right? It's all, it all a lot of us um, are seeing these, you know, these solutions out there. I can go buy an impossible burger, uh, a Whopper at Burger King. Except here. Oh, they, so I don't think. Not, they, a, not <laughs> a cop, wasn't well, that funny? <laughs> so let's put it all together. What I find tremendously exciting is that it's sort of like double or nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is, yeah. It is no longer an exciting kind of possibility, a real possibility, but still a possibility of, you know, getting to this inflection point of a, a sort of b entering an era of global restoration. It is a requirement. We must quickly and as, as rapidly as possible enter that era of global planetary restoration in order to avoid a much darker outcome. Yeah, it, we we can create the ecotopia, as you called it, or we could just die. I mean, it's, it's all or nothing. It's, it it's is, all or nothing. It's double like, or nothing, as you put we it. We got to get to ecotopia in order to get to ecotopia. <laughs> like, it's not just going to happen. Yeah, yeah, heavy, heavy stuff. I know, you, I know you've got to run, I and mean, I could sit here forever. But do you have any final thoughts? Anything you just want to make sure you say before you take off? Just as a yeah, sort of a last little commentary you know we were talking about the name of your podcast uh -huh. planet and and i was saying that that there's a link here with some of the conversation i have and that you know so so oftentimes you know we we have this conversation about natural climate solutions and we walk through all of the reasons why despite you know the challenges of improving land stewardship all the reasons why it makes so much sense and then we, then we get to the point of the notion that, like, okay, so if, if natural climate solutions are 30% of the solution and, and the level of investment even today, where we know the overall level needs to increase, but the level of investment in NCS as a, fun, as a proportion of the current investment in climate mitigation is less than 3%. So it's an order of magnitude um, underinvested 
even within the current amount of investment right. in climate mitigation. So yeah. they're so okay. So then it's like wow, you know. So then what the heck's going on? Like why is there so there's so many reasons to invest in NCS, you know? Why is that there's such a disconnect between the level of current investment and where we should be? And and I don't, of course, I don't know. Right. We all know that land is complicated, but we also know that there are all sorts of solutions out there. And, you know, but what I keep coming back to is that nature has a branding problem. Mm-hmm. That nature um, is talked about and s- in the environmental community, of which I'm, of course, part of, as sort of as a victim, as sort of a victim role, it's kind of this, kind of, I think we, it's been, you know, talked about as kind of this, you know, warm and fuzzy, you know, obviously wonderful, you know, you know, biosphere that we need to protect, but it's sort of a victim role. We, we less often talk about nature as, you know, a bionic <laughs> system, as, as you know, a far more um, complex and sophisticated technology than your iPhone. Mm. You know, yeah. a, a technology that is, is way, way, in terms of negative emission technologies, the most mature, cost-effective negative emission technology available today. It's called photosynthesis. It's been yeah. around for millions of years. So that was just to say that I think I certainly agree with, I think, some of the sort of basic messaging that I love about the title of your podcast is that we need people to understand that nature is a powerful, resilient technology that we need to invest in just as we're investing in so many other climate technologies. Bronson Griscom closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. Again, if you like the show and you want more and better episodes, you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. If you're on the legacy system and you're happy paying a monthly amount, even if I don't produce anything, you can stay there. But if you want to pay per episode instead of per month, Patreon is the way to go. The address again is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. And that about wraps up this edition of Bionic Planet. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening. Bionic Planet.